Hey, what's up, Touch 'Em All listeners? This is Derek Wetmore, the co-host of the Touch 'Em All podcast. Phil Mackey and I are doing a ton of fun episodes this offseason in what should be a really pivotal winter for the Twins organization under new management. Uh, earlier this week, I sat down with 1500 ESPN Vikings writer Matthew Collar to talk about the Twins and analytics and the new front office for his podcast, The Sports Analytics Department. I figured you might like this podcast. It's not a standard Touch 'Em All podcast, but... Plenty of twins, nerdy stats dive on this, so I hope you enjoy this special episode of the Touch 'Em All podcast. This episode is presented by Minnesota's very own Ticket King. For tickets for an upcoming game or concert, visit TicketKingOnline.com or a quick link from the 1500ESPN.com sports calendar page. TicketKingOnline.com, 612-341-4141. The following is a Podcast One Minnesota production. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed saying touch them all. Way back and gone. Touch them all, Joe Maurer. And now these guys are making it relevant to this year's Twins. It's a beautiful game. Now our two resident hardball nerds will attempt to touch them all on the week's news surrounding the Twins in MLB. I didn't know they still had a team. That's baseball. Here's Phil Mackey and Derek Wetmore. Welcome into another episode of the Sports Analytics Department. Matthew Collar here with you. And joining me for this episode to talk about the rebuilding Minnesota Twins and analytics and how they will use them going forward is Derek Wetmore. Derek, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, Matthew. Well, this is a funny conversation to be having in 2016, in my opinion, because most teams had this talk about implementing sabermetrics or analytics years ago when Moneyball started. And at first, there was a lot of, oh, ha, ha, they haven't won any World Series with all those stats. And then every team started to build up a group of 10 or, or more people to work on numbers throughout the season for them. And then I, I think... Everybody got to a point, whether it's fans or um, teams, that it's just, it's just accepted as, oh, yes, analytics are a major part of this game. But the Twins were maybe the one of the only teams that had not invested that heavily, and now they plan to. So let's go backward before we go forward. Why did the Twins not jump on board when the Red Sox and Yankees, the the most expensive teams in the league, were investing heavily in it uh, and some of the teams that needed the money ball uh, help to to be uh, contenders? I've got a lot of answers to that question, and some of it's just speculative, their theories, but let's get over the background a little bit. Did you know, Matthew, that... uh, Michael Lewis, the author of Moneyball, actually first pitched the idea to follow around the Twins and their front office and do a story on how they're competing in baseball despite strapped payrolls. The Twins turned it down, and so he called Billy Bean up, and they went to the A's, and the rest is history. Um, But one thing that I think was always fundamentally misunderstood about Moneyball is people said, oh, it's a book about walks. Or more broadly, oh, it's a book about stats and like stats versus scouts and bunch of nerds ruining baseball. Moneyball to me was always more about market inefficiencies and figuring out, okay, this is what teams or executives or players or leagues or whatever, this is how they value this. And in this case, we're probably talking home runs, RBIs, batting average. And Moneyball was about the difference between how most people perceive the value of something and 
how you could maybe more accurately gauge it. Uh, walks was the big thing. On-base percentage, of course, the early 2000 Oakland Athletics sort of, I, I don't know if you'd say pioneered because there are other teams that were doing that and just weren't getting credit for it. Um, I bet, I mean, as soon as Bill James was hired with the Red Sox, on-base percentage became a huge emphasis for them. So I guess I just want to dispel the notion that, like, Moneyball means, like, computers and spreadsheets. Moneyball just means figuring out a way to most accurately value yours and other teams' players and maybe capitalizing on the difference in opinion there. And that's what the Twins' new regime is going to do. In fact, after Thad Levine and Derek Falvey were done with their introductory press conference, uh, media kind of got to, you know, chit-chat with them a little bit and continue some either follow-up interview questions or just talk. And Thad mentioned something sort of offhandedly to a small group of reporters. Basically said, uh, we're in the process of trying to figure out how to value our players. And it's not like we're coming in cold. I know who Minnesota's players are. You know, he was the number two in Texas behind John Daniels for a number of years. It's just going to be a little bit different viewing it through this new lens and his new position as you know, senior vice president, general manager. Same goes for Derek Falvey. Coming over from the Indians, he's probably familiar with Twins players, but maybe not as intimately familiar as, like, say, Terry Ryan would have been when he was in the chair for the Twins. Um, the thing that struck me about Thad's comment was that he's trying to figure out not only how they should value their own players, and he already knows how he values the rest of the league, but what he needs to learn now is how the rest of the league values the Twins players. And that's why I think this offseason is going to be such a fascinating dynamic. To answer the second part of your question, though, in the longest-winded way I possibly can here, it's that the Twins sort of just have this... Um, I, I'm going to just sort of invent this term, and, and this is all speculative, but they just sort of have this family business atmosphere where it's kind of like, I mean, it's consistently rated in Minnesota as one of the best companies to work for. And I'm talking not just front office, but I mean, you know, the people that work around the stadium and the people in the business office. It's like it, it's a very strong company to work for. And I think that the poll ads, while they don't really get a lot of credit for that, I think they take a lot of pride in that problematically though in my opinion that extends to the front office and in a market or or in an industry like major league baseball where you have basically 30 teams competing with varying degrees of resources for one ultimate prize namely wins and a world series title you sort of have to be cutthroat i mean that's how professional sports are now you have to be more cutthroat than i think the twins have been uh, when they were more or less content to, when Terry Ryan stepped down the first time, yeah, just promote whoever he picks. Yeah, let him take who. So he handpicks Bill Smith, who admittedly was not a personnel guy. He was the GM, and he orchestrated a couple of bad trades that really set the organization back a lot. And then when it came time to fire Bill Smith, and they knew that he was not going to be the general manager any longer for the Twins, uh, and, I, and I don't blame them for this approach. I think maybe it made sense at the time, but their answer was go hire Terry Ryan. The guy who had stepped down citing burnout a few years earlier. And then so to have Terry sort of run the ship as the rest of baseball expands their front offices and pumps more resources into it and the Twins more or less stay static on their payroll of their front office and they're not building out stats departments to the same degree that other other companies competing for this prize are doing, it's not hard to see why they fell behind the times. And I, that's not to say they can't catch up in short order, but I think the the sort of family atmosphere is the best theory that I have for why the Twins have sort of fallen behind and not only fallen behind but shrugged their shoulders about falling behind. 
Yeah, well, I think what you were just getting at that there, the fact that every other team as Minnesota was not making those investments was doing it means that all of them have been now for years running way ahead in the race and catching up. Well, yes, you've got a chance to catch up at the same time. They're going to keep running. And so, you know, I mean, if they had run to a spot and stopped and then you could catch up to them, but it doesn't really work that way since new innovations are, are coming all the time. I mean, now teams have access to spin rates and things like that for pitchers and uh, looking at the way that relief pitchers were used in uh, baseball during the playoffs, I think points us a lot toward a new dawning of how managers are even taking some of the numbers and applying them to big situations like using Andrew Miller pretty much any time that it was a high leverage situation or something like that, which is my, my next thought for you, Derek is now, so catching up. Yeah, that's going to be really hard to do, but I think a team like Minnesota can't just catch up. They can't be on par with Boston because Boston has this thing called money and like lots of lots of money. Uh, Fenway Park actually uh, uses money as grass now because they have so much of it. And the same thing goes for the Chicago Cubs. They can spend hundreds of million dollars on John Lester or something like that. And we've seen the Oakland A's sort of start to fall back a little bit. They may rise again. But the point just being that things got a lot harder for the Oakland A's after Moneyball was out there yes. because the rich teams started to uh, find ways to use those analytics as well. So now if you're the Twins, the only way in my mind to now become a competitive team if you're not the ones that can bring in a John Lester or uh, your hot take trade for Chris Sale, if that cannot happen, then they not only need to catch up, but they need to find a new innovation within the game to play it a different way, uh, to use stats in their scouting and and up and down the organization better uh, to get ahead. Would you agree? So here's my theory, and it's for free. (laughs) You're right about innovating. I mean, you, you need to catch up. You need to be valuing defense the same way other teams are, or at least at least have an opinion on it. I don't think that you need to do the same thing that every other team is saying because then necessarily you won't innovate. That's how it works. But you should at least know why they're doing what they're doing. You should know why you know the Royals went out and got some speedy outfielders to help their pitching staff lower their ERAs somewhat, I think I'd argue, artificially. But, hey, artificially lowering an ERA is still lowering an ERA. Um, the, the innovation that I think that needs to take place is not just to catch up with those other teams, but you've got to find something that is the new on-base percentage. And I think for a while there, it didn't get talked about very much, but it's defense. And now, I would argue, pretty much every team knows how valuable defense. Maybe the next innovation is a catcher's value to a pitching staff. Um, I think there are competing theories on that right now. And truthfully, I don't know which I subscribe to. I just know that we're not very good at valuing what catchers bring to a team. Um, I'm not sure we're very good at valuing what front office members bring to a team. I'm not sure we're even that good at valuing what a coaching staff brings to a team. So there there are a lot of areas for innovation. But the number one for me, the first team that figures out how to keep their pitchers off the operating table is going to win multiple World Series. That's my fresh hot take for the day. And, and I've said that a few times on our baseball podcast at 1500 ESPN, the Touch Em All podcast, that basically I think the next market inefficiency is going to come in health because nobody limits how much you can spend on your medical staff, how much you can try to improve what they're doing. And if you look at the studies out there and you look at 
all of the injuries that every team has suffered over the past five, 10, 15 seasons, it's clear that nobody has the answer. Hey, this is Derek Wetmore. Quick interrupting this wonderful Touch Em All podcast. Two requests for you, audience. First, if you have Facebook, which the statistics show you do, go to 1500 ESPN Twin Cities and like our page. You'll get all our stories and all that good stuff. Second, if you'd be interested in a Facebook live streaming of the Touch Em All podcast, let us know on Twitter, at Phil Mackey, at Derek Wetmore. We would love to hear from you. I think that that has started a lot already uh, around the NFL, around hockey, and Major League Baseball just said it's okay for wearable devices to be used on the field, which is uh, includes a sleeve that pitchers can put on. So they're trying to um, come up with a bunch of data to study about different things that pitchers do that may or, or may not cause injuries. Although I, I tend to think that when you're getting guys who throw 98 miles an hour all the time and they're trying to sit at 98 miles an hour, the old thought was that um, pitchers could throw 98, but if they threw 98, they would have a lot of trouble with their arm and they would have a lot of trouble uh, controlling the ball. So a lot of the hardest throwing pitchers would stick at 94 or 95. And, and I think Clayton Kershaw does this. I think Clayton Kershaw could throw probably 98 miles an hour, but he doesn't. I mean, because he has his most control there. When he came up in the league, he was touching 97 regularly. Now you don't see it a whole lot, which may be because of his back or a number of other factors. He changed his wind-up a little bit. But I think that's a that's a big part of it is that the arm is just not able to handle that. But I, I agree with you there. Um, a couple of other areas um, that are worth touching on is the stadium. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Brian Dozier couldn't hit home runs in the minor leagues and all of a sudden hits home runs at Target Field, and they all go to a certain area. I think Trevor Plouffe found it favorable, too, to be a pull hitter at Target Field, and I think they need to put a study into that. Is our right-handed pull hitters crushing it at Target Field? And if that's the case, give me nine of them, <laughs> right? Sure. I mean, they know about stadium factors, but I don't know if this team has ever put a ton of thought into it. And with the catchers, now that's where some of the combining of your scouting goes along with uh, your statistics, too. I don't think it's possible to quantify how much Yadier Molina means to the St. Louis Cardinals. I think if you took him out of this year's lineup, they win 75 games, mm-hmm. and I think they won 86 probably less i think he is i think he's that valuable and i don't think that the twins since joe mauer went down have had any type of solution and it's no surprise that they're at the top of the league or bottom of the league uh with the worst era time after time and people it's not a slight to kurt suzuki but when it comes to the intelligence of the catcher the game planning of a catcher then there's the arm the blocking all those things it's the most valuable position in the sport and they just don't really have it at this point or they don't have a future in it at this point and that to me is one of those where you can combine some of the stats with uh, pitch framing and blocking and stuff like that with what you know too about how a guy calls a game well it's chicken and the egg a little bit for me because the twins have also run out some guys that probably shouldn't have been in the major leagues and they're starting games for them and they've also run out guys like Oswaldo Arcia and Miguel Sano in left and right field respectively like you know, a fly ball to the gap with Arcia standing there is going to be way different than if you have a fly ball to the gap with Eddie Rosario shading towards the line and Byron Buxton covering everything out in center field. I think that that's going to be something that starts to be recognized 
locally more is that pitchers control only so much of the outcome. You know, if you strike everybody out, you get to control that. If you walk everybody, you get to control that. And if you give up a home run on every pitch, you control that. Short of that, like when a ball gets hit into play, other than trying to get weak contact, which I'm not sure you can actually repeatedly do consistently over a full, you know, 200-inning season, man, it's really tough. I mean, you can control swings and misses. You can control the super hard contact, like giving up home runs. And you can control if you throw a strike or not. Otherwise, I mean, you don't get to control if the line drive goes into your third baseman's glove or if the grounder bleeds through the middle or if the duck fart falls in front of your center fielder because he was standing at the wall because he doesn't trust himself to go backwards. There are a lot of different things that we struggle to capture in the data right now that I think you also have to combine with, you know, watching the games and having people that have an understanding of both sides of it. I think I I wrote a column on 1500ESPN.com this week that argued Falvey and Levine talked in the right way about scouting versus analytics in that I don't think it's ever been scouting versus analytics. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're scouting players is much more informed if you synthesize the analytics with that. On the other side of that coin, your numbers on a spreadsheet to quote, you know, everyone that rails against statistics in baseball, the numbers on a spreadsheet honestly don't hold as much water without the checkpoint of a scout's eye telling you what this means. Um, I really struggle with the way we overemphasize uh, catching, framing data, and defensive things like UZR, especially when we're using them over a one-season sample or less. It's really problematic for me when we're taking this stuff as gospel and trying to say that, well, now we know about this. Man, I'm not convinced that we do, and I think both sides need to have a little more humility about how to track these things. At the same time, it has become a serious cliche from executives when they're asked about analytics to say, yes, we're going to combine analytics and sure. scouting because Fair. every media member goes, ah, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And <laughs> right. My column. Yes. Here is why I agree with what they are saying. Ah, they're not insulting my sensibilities. Right. And then, and then the nerds go, ah, they're not insulting right. my sensibilities. Yeah, so they'll either. stay off. Yeah, exactly. So they can make everybody uh, happy with that. But I think it goes beyond just trying to find a player based on numbers. Now, like, you can go over uh, Baseball Reference and go to OBP, and, uh, okay, let's just get all the guys with the highest OBPs, which is, I think, really speaks more to how they should have the plan. And this is kind of how it's, like, the most simplified version of what the uh, A's did, right? Getting on base is good regardless of batting average. Avoid outs. Let's click OBPs. All right, let's get the guys who get Scott Hedeberg. Yeah, and you know what? It's It's a... Extremely simple way of putting it, but the idea is right, which is find out what wins in the stats category and find the players that do that thing. Now, whether that's get on base, well, everybody knows that getting on base is going to help you win, but is on base percentage, how predictive is that? How predictive is spin rate of someone's ERA or their XFIP or whatever the heck stat you want to use? But you need to find out which stats will indicate that a player will be good before everyone else knows that they'll be good, which goes beyond. Now, transfer that over to scouting is if you're just scouting, no one is ever just scouting looking for good players, right? You form, uh, I guess, an entire photograph of a a player, and you say he's a guy that's going to get on base a lot. 
he's a guy that's going to hit 270. But he has a weak hit. arm, and he'll never hit for power. Right, exactly. Now, what I think you can do as a baseball organization is you can decide that players with X, Y, and Z tendencies ultimately more often become blank. So let's just say you did this. You went through scouting reports for years and years and years and years, and you put them into an algorithm of the words that were used about those players and tracked that and made charts on that, on which which words, which scores ultimately. Now we're talking about makeup, too. We're talking about character. Yeah, sure. We're talking about the understanding of the game, the work ethic, all those things. How much, which bars went the highest for predictive success of those players that you scouted? Sure. And What's the R score? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, exactly. On certain words or sure. on certain, this guy is a 50 uh, uh, from 20 to 80, and guys who did 50 or better on this skill also tended to do blank. Guys who were given, I think about Joey Gallo for this, how I remember Joey Gallo being talked about as, this guy's 80 power. Not if he never hits it, he isn't. Sure. But how many guys who are given this 80 power tag ever really actually turn out to be 80 power hitters in the big leagues? And what's the trade-off for the ones that are going to swing and miss so much that they won't make it in the big leagues versus hitting on that one guy who might give you 45 bombs in a year, Mark Trumbo? <laughs> yeah, or because sample sizes even over a season are small, that Mark Trumbo can be 45 home runs one year and, sure. and 20 the, the next year. Chris Carter is a great example of that, too, where – I, the Astros clearly gave up on him because they said, well, what, you know, the power ran out. And then he went to Milwaukee and hit a bunch of home runs again because even single seasons are uh, small samples. So I, I think about it. Another thing in terms of an analytical concept or market inefficiency concept that can be used that is not stats, which is there are high risk, high reward players. And I think as a team, as an organization, there is different philosophies on whether you should go out and get guys who have a high hit rate of being a major leaguer, but the best they'll ever be is a five on the two to eight scale. The best they'll ever be is a five. Sure. And guys who more than likely won't make it, but if they do, they'll be a seven. And for the Twins, I don't know what their philosophy has been or if there has been one. I know that the Cardinals went much toward, um, much more toward the, the fives. Let's get... Albert Pujols surrounded by a bunch of guys who are pretty decent and maybe one or two other great players. And I think that the Twins did that in the past with your Michael Kadires, where they would have eight guys who were real good and maybe one big superstar type player. Now, that's just on one lineup. I mean, through the organization. Yeah. So I think about there's a guy named Zach Walters, if anyone's heard of him, who if he ever made it in the big leagues, he would hit 30 home runs, probably steal 20 bases, and could play about four or five different positions. But he can't hit for average and strikes out almost every other time And when he's gotten into the major leagues. That's a player the Twins need to get because if that guy ever figures it out, that needs to be their mantra. In my opinion, if that guy ever figures it out and as they rebuild, scour the earth for guys where the scouting report says if he ever figures it out, he'll be great because if one out of 100 of those guys hits, that's one star. Yeah, the flip side of that coin, just to play devil's advocate, that's a 99 wasted roster spots that you are basically buying lottery tickets. And 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 so to answer your question, Thad Levine did talk about this at the press conference. He mentioned there are some players and some spots wherein it makes sense to 
Pardon the pun. Swing for the fences. Nice. Thanks. But there are other players wherein you basically just need somebody that you're confident is going to get to the major leagues and be an everyday player. Levine said the art of this, that's the science, right? I mean, you figure out, okay, Byron Buxton. Number two overall pick in, was it, 2012? Carlos Correa goes first, then they pick Byron Buxton, a toolsy, fast-as-hell athletic outfielder out of rural Georgia who hasn't really faced great competition, but everyone agrees he's got a killer arm and he's super fast and he can play baseball. Well, okay, let's see if he makes it in the big leagues. Um, but that's the kind of talent that you're going to swing for when you have the number two overall pick. I think where this gets more interesting is what happens when you have a fourth-round pick? Are you going to pick a kid out of college who played a good first base in college and you know hit a bunch of home runs and who might fill an organizational spot? Or are you going to take a gamble on like a young high school pitcher with a 98-mile-an-hour fastball and no idea where it's going? Now, those guys don't last to the fourth round, fourth round but like the idea is the same. Where do you find the floor versus ceiling argument? Where do you fall on that? And that's what Thad Levine said has been basically the art form of doing it in Texas for so long. When he was working under John Daniels, they tried to identify which situations do we need to swing for a high ceiling player and which situations do we just need a second baseman who's going to make it to the big leagues. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to figure that out, and I don't think you can ever actually do it without the benefit of hindsight. But if you can sort of get lucky along the way and have a good process in building an organization around those philosophies, I think that's where you start to see the fruits of success. Um, and and I have no idea if these two new guys are going to be able to do that in Minnesota, but I think it's an encouraging sign if you're a Twins fan. They're at least talking in this language, and they're thinking along these lines. Um, yeah, I totally uh, agree with you there. One last thought for the Twins. Free advice. Because it's a free podcast. Yeah, I already gave the medical one. Figure out how to keep guys from getting Tommy John surgery. And there are companies you can use for that, um, which a lot of baseball teams are starting yeah. to invest and in. Heart rate monitoring, all that sort of stuff. I should say, too, before you ask your final question here, that the Twins are doing that. I think the perception among a lot of Twins fans is they are dead last in the league in medical and dead last in the league in stats. I don't feel that's true. I've covered this team very closely, and having talked to several front office people, the feeling is sort of there are you know, five or six teams that are running away from the field in analytics, and then there are five or six bottom feeders that like just don't belong in the conversation. Everyone else is somewhat interchangeable. Now, maybe the Twins are the back half of that pack, and maybe that's fair. But that they're last, I don't agree with that. I think there are organizations that are worse. Medical, I would argue that the Twins are in the front half of that. I read a story in spring training about this catapult technology oh, yeah. that players are wearing these things. They kind of look like sports bras and ha-ha-ha, it's funny, and you guys, you know, as you're whipping towels at each other in the clubhouse, you laugh about it. But Heart rate monitor. Heart rate monitor. But there's some very serious motion tracking technology going on in there, and the analysis of that I think could help eventually, this is the theory, one day become predictive toward, hey, this guy's – He's got some biomechanical fatigue in his left shoulder, and I can tell by looking at this monitor and this data that it's right. spit out here. Let's give him two days off and let him recover a little bit. I know you have him throwing a bullpen today, but it'd be smarter if he didn't have to throw that bullpen. I think the Twins are more advanced than people give him credit for in that. And you need to have buy-in to those concepts from top to bottom, because if you don't, then it's just headbutting and you don't get anywhere, and you're sure. paying a lot of money for data that you're not utilizing. My free advice is the 92-mile-an-hour fastball is still a hell of a good fastball if you can control it. And while everybody else's flamethrowers are being drafted at the very top of the draft and they're injuring their arms, here is Kyle Hendricks or here is 
John Lester or a number of guys who are tremendously talented control pitchers at 92 to 94 who drop down in the draft now or they get left out by other organizations as uh, just a guy, just a guy. But control is still number one in my mind. And there are a lot of pitchers who I think are not getting opportunities or not getting the innings or being forgotten about in the draft or wherever else because they throw 92 as opposed to throwing 98. Just my quick opinion on that. I think missing bats is important, too. And not to say that you're skimming past that or right. anything. No, I'm talking about these guys can strike people out. Yep, I'm yep. Just I, don't, that, I don't think that you should try to go get a guy that can hit the barrel of the bat consistently at 92 miles an hour. I think you should try to get somebody who can bust somebody's handle or who can paint the four spot in a spot where he just needs a strike or get a hitter to expand the zone. There's all kinds of things that go into pitching that have – Little to nothing to do with, like, big arm talent. And I think that's what you're hitting on. Um, well, and they'll stay healthy. Sure. I mean, if, if you they, can keep them healthy, there you go. If they stay healthy at a higher rate, even if they don't turn into Hendricks and don't be Cy Young candidates, if they're three-and-a-half ERA guys and you have four of those guys and an ace or the other team has three aces and two of them get hurt and miss 100 innings or a whole season, you're doing better than they are. And maybe it's not quite realistic, but my point is just that I think those guys are going to get overlooked in the draft through organizations. It's undervalued. Exactly. Exactly like what we were talking about with Thad Levine earlier. That's Looking for the undervalued players and figuring out which teams maybe overvalue some of your players and swing a trade and capitalize on that surplus value. All right. Well, Derek, I appreciate your time, and it is something we will continue to track and talk about and podcast as well here on the Sports Analytics Department. A lot of fun. Thanks, Matthew.